let's get into this this morning. Let's talk about some good things. Before we get to the bad stuff, let's talk about some good stuff this morning. Uh, what's one positive thing you as a dad or man or a positive dad figure in your life? What's something that can be counted on to do? What you got for me this morning? There we go. Leo's one that got us. Oh, Rick first. I've, I've always been able to make my kids laugh. That's it. I had two father figures in my life. My father and Janine's father. And uh, <clears throat> the thing that stood out to me from both of these men is no matter what the situation, no matter what was going on or how hard or difficult or whatever, they still manned up and took care of it. And that it was a great example to me. Outstanding. All right. Who else? Good positive things men in your life do. Thank you, Brian. I'll say moving. My dad helped me move six times over a two-year period and my sons uh, put me through the test as well. <laughs> God bless you, Brian. <laughs> and your dad, yes. All right, who else? What's one great thing your dad or a father figure in your life can be counted on to do? Oh, got one over here and then. My dad always taught me to work. From the time I was six years old, it was up at five o'clock in the morning. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where I get my work ethic from. Deal, all right. Got one behind you. So I have an irrational fear of rodents, like mice and rats and bats, and I could always trust that my dad would take care of anything that I could find. Very good. You're pretty good at bats yourself, by the way. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> All right. Who else? Positive thing a father figure in your life or your own self. Dad, you can toot your own horns. This is a good time to speak up for yourself, by the way, if you have that in you. You don't have to, but you could. My dad can always fix anything. If it's broken, I, can, I know I can count on my dad to fix it. <laughs> awesome. Very good. Yeah, I'm horrible with that type of stuff. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's good at it. Here we go. Uh, Rich, behind you. Oh, over here. And I'm going to embarrass him, but it's okay. This man here, my husband, is an amazing father. Always been there for his sons. Can fix everything and anything and build without instructions. Instructions just get in the way. I don't know why they have those. <laughs> all right. Anybody else? Those are all great. Here we go. Land up front. Just want to say, we talked about this a few minutes ago, but he doesn't want to share it, but I will. Uh, he uh, is always there for the kids, for me, even friends, you know. He's always there to to be a support, and, um, and he always makes us feel safe. Very good. Great job, Brian. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Um, I can really count on my dad for anything, but especially when I forget to um, check the gas in my car and run out of gas, and he comes and saves me on the side of the road. <laughs> One of those daughters. Oh, man. <laughs> I had two stepsisters like that. They're great. <laughs> Good job. All right, thank you. Anybody else? All right, awesome. Thanks for sharing. Appreciate that. All right, also all good answers. I was thinking of my, uh, of my grandfather this week. Uh, he passed away when he was 
92. Um, it's been a little while since he's, he's been with us, but I was reflecting on his life, and he could be counted on for many, many things. He was an awesome carpenter. Uh, he would have been the first person here helping out with this wood. He was just so good about that type of stuff. But one thing that he was especially talented at was a great joke. Uh, if you ever thought, man, I wish I could inherit something from, some, from one of my ancestors, right? Joke telling from my granddad was what I wish I could have grabbed from him. I am horrible at jokes. He was really, so really good at them. Uh, and he would often take long pauses when he told them, right? He would just pause and you think, I mean, is he, has he got to the punchline yet? But when he finally made it through, it was really, really good. And I'm not very good at them, but I wanted to remember him and I wanted to kind of get into the, the spirit of Father's Day. We saw one on the video. I want to do a couple of dad jokes for you. Is that okay? We can do dad jokes this morning? Okay. All right. So here we go. Get ready. <clears throat> and they're all great. Uh, did you know the first French fries weren't actually cooked in France? They were cooked in Greece. Yeah, true story. My friend keeps saying, cheer up, man, it could be worse. You could be stuck underground in a hole full of water. I know he means well. Good job, John. All right. <laughs> My wife is really mad at the fact I have no sense of direction, so I pat to my stuff and write. <laughs> a couple more. Bear with me. Which days are the strongest? Saturday and Sunday. The rest are weekdays. <laughs> Just two more. Here we go. I hate it when people say that age is only a number. Age is clearly a word. <laughs> Very last one. My wife and I decided not to have any kids. The kids are taking it pretty badly. <laughs> All right. Now, as a card-carrying man uh, and dad, I know that men are great at a lot of things. Y'all pointed out so many here in the room this morning. I appreciate that. Uh, the one thing I think we struggle with as guys is opening up and sharing about the really, really hard things we struggle with in our lives. Now, sure, you'll talk to a bunch of guys, and you'll get them in a room together. They'll talk about how bad work is on occasion, how they're struggling at work, maybe. They'll talk about maybe the occasional home life problems, right? About, you know, maybe wife, maybe kid stuff, you know. But big things, the big, big things that most of us struggle with, we keep to ourselves. We really do. Almost like we're embarrassed to, to let it out because we don't want to look weak, right? So today... All the cards are on the table, gents. I know I'm spilling all the secrets. Sorry. <laughs> right? But I think it's important. I think it's important because we're going to dive into some of these biggest fails. And what I want us to realize is that uh, we all struggle with these things, whether we want to admit it or not. And I wanted to do this because all too often as we're hiding these, we think, man, I just want to, I'm going to deal with it on my own, right? I'll process it on my own. I'll, I'll get through it. And then before anybody finds out I have a problem, I'll have it fixed. But more often than not, they never go away. And what we're often struggling with is things we've struggled with since childhood, really. And we're left with it alone. And we're looking at it as if we have it all together on the outside, but we're just dying on the inside. And I say we very literally this morning. We all struggle with this. So when I say that, I'm not meaning you. Although if you feel guilty, then that's on you. I understand because I'm talking to myself as well this morning. We all struggle with these things. The thing is, we're not alone. 
None of us here are alone in this. Many of us are going to be nodding our heads at some of these fails because we've all been there. We're going to share in these same struggles. And we're not only going to share with the people in this room with these struggles, we're going to share in these struggles with this one figure we're going to look at today. This man we're going to look at today, he was not only uh, looked at and counted on to do great things, but he also had great, great failures. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to encourage you to open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we're going to look through the life of a man that many would have called the man of his day, and that's King David. So let's dive into 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. Before we get to the very scripture, we're going to dive into the first one. I want to uh, note that um, David here, he's really, if you look through the whole of the Bible, before you get to Jesus, David is the hero of the story. He is the man, right? In the very beginning, you see, I mean, he's like the least of Jesse's sons. He's the forgotten one that his dad's like, oh yeah, I do have that one other kid. He's way out there in the field, right? He's really forgotten, but he's the one that's chosen to be king by Samuel, right? He was a shepherd boy to many, to his brothers. He was the runt of the family, but he was courageous and strong beyond his years. He fought off lions and he fought off bears to defend his father's sheep. He'd stand up to the giant Goliath and kill him with a stone and a sling. We think of all these stories of David. We think about him being this king who goes to, goes to war and he defeats thousands of, of, of uh, people in battle. And you're like, man, this guy has got it all together, right? You read later in part of his life, and he's not only has valor and skill, but he has compassion and humility. He winds up, you see, uh, early in his life, he learns how to play the lyre, and he writes these beautiful worship songs. He was just loyal to his friends. He even lamented over the death of the man that was trying to kill him most of his life. That's the kind of man David was. The Bible said that he was a man after God's own heart. He was the type of man that every man wanted to be and wanted to be around, but he was far, far from perfect. We pick up his story at the midpoint in his life, and at this point, he's accomplished a great deal. He's been crowned king of all Israel. The whole kingdom is his. He's defeated most of his enemies. He's even been promised by God that from his line, there was going to come some king that was going to live forever, and his kingdom would never fail. So things are going pretty, pretty good for David here at this midpoint in his life. He can look back and reflect on all the great successes that he's had until this one fateful afternoon. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says this. It's going to be up on the screen. It'll be uh, in your living room if you're watching online with us or in your Bibles if you're following along. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with them, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Man fell number one. Laziness. Laziness. You see, in those days, kings were supposed to lead the army out in battle. David had done it himself many, many times before. And, and here we read that it's the very first campaign of the year. So he's had all winter, and all his men have had all winter just to sit and chill, to recover, to spend time with their families, to rest, to tend to their land. And David has done that. Done that. He has spent his time in the palace. He's rested with his multiple children and had a great time off. But now he's at war with his neighbors to the east and to the north, but instead of going out to lead the army and leading the charge, he stays home. He's lazy. Now, I want to redefine laziness because I think if you read that David is lazy, you say, man, I don't see David as being lazy. But laziness isn't what we typically think of it is. Laziness isn't just a lack of effort or no interest in working, okay? But rather a lack of effort at the right things, okay? 
The majority of men I know are hard workers. There, there are some exceptions to that rule. I mean, you probably know some people who really are lazy. But for the majority of the people I know, especially in our community, they're really, really hard workers. They're working all the time, sometimes two and three jobs, right? But I said we're going to be real this morning. And I believe laziness can get the best of us, no matter what our situation is. We may go work hard at a shift at the company, or we may go work hard in the field, but when we get home, we don't feel like doing anything, so we just chill out, have a drink, just, just rest in the recliner, right? Maybe on our days off, we work really hard at getting our guns clean. Maybe we work really hard at cleaning up that rod and reel and getting ready. Maybe we get out real early and head to the lake and, and, and go to the river or the woods, but when the kids ask if they can play with us, we say, man, I'm a little tired today. Or maybe you're this dad. Maybe you're running the kids everywhere. Maybe you're putting them in every sport imaginable. Maybe you're pouring your total life into them. Everything you possibly could, but you're lazy when it comes to relating to our wives. We're reading our Bible. We're praying. We're helping our brother and sister in Christ out. You see, we can work hard and play hard and still be lazy about doing the things we really should be working on. Man fail number one. David exhibits it here. It's laziness. We struggle with it. We, me, struggle with it. So, David's Netflix and chilling instead of out leading his men. So if you're lazy and you're not doing the things you're supposed to do, do things typically go great whenever you're not doing something you're supposed to do, right? No. All, the, all your wives can tell you no, right? And whenever you're sitting in your recliner not wanting to do anything and they have something they want you to do, it typically doesn't get better from there, does it? So David's story continues to get worse. Verse 2, it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, before we get to the beautiful woman, and trust me, we will get there, everyone, uh, let's take a look at fail number two, which is pride. Pride. Now, remember I said at this point, David had been as successful as you possibly could be, right? He had done everything he could. Now he's at the peak of his life, and he takes the season off, and he's lounging on the roof. Now you can imagine maybe being the king, and his roof would have been higher than all the other roofs around him. So he's lounging up on his roof, and he's walking back and forth with no particular place to go, and he's just surveying all that's his, right? The prosperous conqueror, enjoying the privileges that come with getting to the top of the mountain, right? Now, I don't think any of us have quite arrived like David, but at this point in his life, I, I think he's fallen into this trap that we all typically fall into, which is, which is pride, right? You spend your life working hard, making money here and there, you, and you save it up, and maybe you buy that new boat, maybe you might buy that new truck, maybe you buy that new ATV, and you're like, man, this is what I've been waiting to get, right? So you sit in the cab, or you sit out on the lake in the water, and you think, oh, man, finally, this is what it's about. This is what I've been working for year after year to do. This is why I'm worked to the weekend to just chill out and just sit here and do nothing, right? Pride has a way of placing us on a pedestal. And while we might not be looking down on others who don't have what we have, it's a whole lot easier when we have that pride in our lives to overlook them. It's easy to say, man, I deserve this, even if we don't say it out loud. It's easy to say, man, if they want what I have, they should be working hard for it. I worked hard. They should work hard. I wasn't lazy. I worked to get it. They should be able to get that. Pride puts us up on this pedestal. Or if we don't think that, just as bad, maybe we don't think about anybody else at all. That's pride too. 
David felt a swell of pride as he looked out over his kingdom with all of the little roofs underneath him. And as he's sweeping his gaze over this tire side, he finds one thing that is way too pretty to ignore. He spies this woman up on the roof bathing, which is a perfectly common practice for that time and place. The bathing, by the way, not the spying, all right? The bathing was a common practice. But it's at this point that I want to point out something. As David's up here with his pride, he's being lazy, he's got the pride thing going on, both big fails, he should not have been there, but he was. As he's looking out over the roofs and he spies this pretty woman bathing on the roof, this naked silhouette out there on the roof down below him, at this point, he hasn't failed at at this. Because he could have saw her, and he could have averted his eyes, and he could have moved on with his day, and that would not have been a failure. Okay? See, there's all manner of temptations in this world, guys. <laughs> I think you're well aware of these that we face each day. Anything that catches our gaze can be this temptation that draws us in, right? Maybe it's the latest phone. Maybe it's the newest UTV that you see that you want. Maybe it's the latest menu item from your favorite restaurant. All that stuff is geared to catch our attention, right? It's designed to lure us in with our eyes. But even things that aren't intentionally advertising, like women, <laughs> They can do the exact same thing. They're just as effective at catching our eyes. So maybe you happen to be scrolling on your phone and you pass that ad. Maybe you had to be walking down a beach and you happen to see that 20-year-old. Maybe you're just driving around town and you notice a pretty woman. And all these things catch your eye. And if they just catch your eye, that's okay. All right? I do want to clarify this. At this point, David hasn't failed. And if you just happen to have a, a beautiful woman walk past you, and like, hey, that's a beautiful woman. Great. Take note, move on, and let it like, go back with your life. That's okay, right? Now, I know none of you do that if you're in a relationship with a, with a, with a lady in your life right now, all right? I know you don't, guys. I know you're not looking at anybody else. <laughs> I know that is not a problem, all right? So ladies, you have nothing to worry about. Nobody's looking anywhere else but you, okay? Uh, but by the, just the, the crazy chance that just happens, that's okay. That's okay. What's not okay is what David does. In the Hebrew, the word saw here means his gaze lingered. (laughs) Lingered. It was like a replay, really, of the garden scene in Genesis 1 where where Eve, she she was walking through the garden and she comes to this, she just happens to be coming up to this tree where she sees the fruit she's not supposed to eat and she sees it and it's a beautiful fruit and it's very appealing and she lingers by the tree, right? So David looks, he sees the woman, and he lingers on the roof. He didn't have any place to go anyway. There happens to be a woman bathing, fuel view. Why not? No big deal. So he commits one of men's biggest failures, which is lust. Now, lust is a lot of things, but what I really think lust is, is a really poor imitation of love. It is a really poor imitation You see, love is mutually fulfilling, right? When you love something, the goal isn't just to love it with all your heart. It's to be loved back with all the heart of another. But lust here, lust is self-indulgent. It's this desire that is only interested in satisfying the individual person, not both people. I want to keep it real with you guys this morning. We've all been there, guys. Let's not pretend, okay? Each and every one of us has been in a situation, maybe not on a roof looking at a woman bathing, but we've been in a situation where we've lingered a little too long than we, more than we should have. And I'm not just talking about when we're teenage boys with hormones flying everywhere. I'm talking about day-to-day life, guys. I know it. It happens. This is a very real and present danger in our lives, and most of us have struggled with it. 
Jesus understood this better than anybody. He said that lust is so serious. He said, it is better for you to pluck your eye out of its socket and throw it away than to lust after somebody. That's pretty serious, right? And I think why he said this is because he was reflecting in part to this story here in David's life. David sees the lady. He sees she is beautiful. His gaze lingers a little bit longer than it should have. And the next verse says this, verse 3 and 4. And David sent and inquired about the woman. He couldn't let it go. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? I know who that is. That's her. That's her. So David sent messengers and they took her, as a king has prerogative to do in his day. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness and then she returned to her, to her house. This would have been bad enough if David had just looked and lingered and gazed and, and took in and tried to satisfy himself. But then he took it one step further and committed adultery. Now that would have been bad enough even if it wasn't adulterous. Even for David to be single and so say that Bathsheba was single, right? Because acting out of lust was still going to dishonor this relationship. By him seeing her and saying, that is what I want, and taking it for himself, that was not mutual, mutual beneficial, that was not loving, that was abuse, right? So he takes her, and that enough would have been dishonoring. That, that enough would not be treating her as uh, an image bearer of God, but rather treating her as an object to fulfill his own desire. But it was doubly damaging because she was married, and, and so was he. As a matter of fact, she was married to one of his best soldiers. One of the men, by the way, we just said, he sent away to go fight. So the, he says, Uriah, you're one of my guys. You've got to go off and you've got to take care of this battle for me. I'm going to stay here and chill out of the house, all right? and I'm just going to take a leisurely stroll one afternoon. And by the way, I might sleep with your wife. right? That's kind of where this went. This is crazy to think, but this is what happened. And if, you, if anybody here is thinking, man, how could you do that, Dave? How could that be, man? I could never do that. Guess what? It happens all the time, all the time, all the time. Matter of fact, it happens every day. And I wouldn't do that, becomes famous last words. You see, David, his failure isn't unique. We've all been there. I remember I went to, I was in the Marine Corps, I was only two years in, and we went to Mexico. We're flying to California, but we went to Mexico on like a day trip, a little fun little Mexican vacation in the middle of our uh, desert excursion. And so we went to, went to there, and, and Mexico, and especially border towns in Mexico, uh, pretty famous for not being very uh, uh, modest. <laughs> and so you could pretty much buy and see whatever you wanted to buy and see, and you got a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old Marines running around with nothing better to do, nothing better to spend their money on. And so there's brothels and places, and I remember having a conversation in a bar with this one guy. And he said, oh, I don't know, I think I might, I think I might go and, and try this. And he was married. I've only been married a year. I said, I wouldn't do that. I said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He said, no, I think it'll be okay. He said, what do you think? I said, I wouldn't. I, you're not going to do it. You're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. Don't do it. He did it. And he regretted it. That marriage didn't last very long. It happens every day. And it might not be in Mexico. It might be right here. I don't know. But it happens all the time. Lust gets the best of us. And we let it follow to, to its end. Now, this has consequences, obviously, because as sex always does, it has consequences. So, verse 5 says, And the woman conceived. 
And she sent and she told David, I'm pregnant. Surprise. Now, if you thought the Bible was boring, there's a great story to kind of clue you back in. There's a lot of real stuff going on here, right? So David fails in his lust. He commits adultery. He's abused his power by taking something that wasn't his, and now he's got a problem. Because in his day, adultery isn't just something you go to a divorce lawyer and you get that all ironed out and you have, you know, maybe have bad feelings between each other for a while, but you work through it. No, adultery in those days was punishable by death for both parties. All right? If it was found out, you'd be killed, both, both sides. The man and the woman would both be dead. So, David's got a problem. And while it could be hidden before, he could have just said, oh, you know, there's no evidence that there was anything going on. Now there's proof. Now there's proof. So David does another classic man fail, the cover-up. The cover-up. You know, when I was 16, I was driving my mom's car into town, and the speed limit goes from 55 to 45 outside of our town like it does in most South Georgia towns because they love to give you speeding tickets, right? And so it slows down from 55 to 45. I never got, uh, sorry, I never slowed down. As a result, I get a ticket. Do you think I told my mom when I got home? That's right, Dave. (laughs) No, I did not. I tried to hide it. Did it work? No, it did not, right? She found out anyway, and I wind up getting in trouble twice, right? Now, the cover-up isn't just a man fail, because I think we all do it, but I think as men, I think we think we're pretty good at it. So David sets about to orchestrate the biggest cover-up in his time, right? He, he, uh, he gets Uriah, right? And he, the husband of Bathsheba, he, he gets him back from the front lines, and he invites him to his house, all right? And he says, hey, tell me how things are going on the front. How's things happening there, right? And after he gives the report, he says, you know what? You're already here. It's miles to go back before you have to go back to the battle. So why don't you stay here? Matter of fact, why don't you go home to your wife, and, you know, you can spend some time with her. You can catch up. I know it's been a long time. Maybe you can enjoy each other's company for a while, right? David thinks he's got it figured out. Uriah, he gets up, but he doesn't go home. He winds up sleeping outside the palace. David says, darn, all right, that didn't work. So plan B, he gets Uriah to come back. He says, hey, man, I got this great feast. We're going to celebrate how the war is going. We're going to have this great big party. We're going to have the best drink. And he gets Uriah drunk. And he's thinking, man, if I can get him drunk, he can go back to his wife then. And then he'll, he'll you know, everything will work itself out. Uriah turns out to be more disciplined drunk than David is sober. Sober, and so he doesn't leave. He winds up staying outside the palace again and doesn't go home. So finally, David's like, dang, man. So he hatches another scheme. He sends Uriah back with a note to his commander saying, all right, Joab, who is the commander, what I want you to do is I want you to send Uriah with a group of men. I want you to go to the front, to attack the gates of the city, which is just the wrong thing to do. Go to the very front against these walls and fight hard against the gates. And then when you're there, pull back all the men and leave Uriah standing at the front of the gate by himself so that he'll be killed. So the battle happens. The men charge the gate, pull back. Uriah gets killed. It all goes according to David's plan. Step one of the cover-up is done. All right, now your eyes out of the picture. Things are a little easier now, but you've got to have step two. Verse 26 of chapter 11 says this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented. She was sad, obviously. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
To everybody on the outside, it would appear the king was being noble. Here's the, the wife of his dead soldier. So he's not going to leave her alone. He's going to take care of her. So let's bring her into the palace and, and make her one of his wives, which he had many at this point. So he's taking in this widow and he's caring for her. And as far as everyone else was concerned, this was all good. Nothing was wrong. But David was committing another fail here. He, was, he didn't just cover up the sin, but now he's burying the sin. For a year, David carries this burden. The burden of that day, the laziness, the pride, the lust, the adultery, the cover-up. He's putting on this front every day, pretending he's king, he's got it together, it's all good. But he's laid down every single night, wrestling with guilt and shame on the inside. How often do we do that, guys? How often? Man. Every day, I think many of us, myself included, put on our clothes for the day, whether it be for work or for going out or playing or whatever, and we also put on the weight of a hundred could've, should've, would'ves. Most of them nobody knows but us. Well, except maybe one other person. Verse 27 says that, that God knew David's hidden sin. And God wasn't happy. Now the next year comes. A whole year later, the baby's born, and one of the most memorable scenes in the entire Bible takes place. This is one of my favorite, most seared into my memory uh, scenes in the entire Bible. You see Nathan, who was a prophet, which was somebody appointed by God to, to do one of two things. He was supposed to either encourage the king to do the right thing, or he was to call the king out when the king failed. And so David sends Nathan to confront him over this sin that David thought he had hid so, 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 so well. But Nathan doesn't just rush up into the palace and say, you've done this bad thing, you know you committed adultery, you know you murdered your husband, you know that son is illegitimate, you know all these things. He doesn't just rush out and say it. Instead, what he does is he walks up, he gets an audience with the king, and he crafts together 60 to 80, roughly, depending on your translation, 60 to 80 chosen words to make this point and to make it where David can see clearly for himself his sin. It's verses 1 through 6 in chapter 12. I'm going to read it. It's so good. He said, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man, he had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and, and, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, and it used to lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or own herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5 says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. 
Now, David, at this point, he's intently involved in this story, right? He sees the man for what he is, and he reacts with this righteous anger, believing that this to be a true story, not just one that was made up by Nathan. So he passes a death sentence on this rich man. David didn't even realize in the moment. He didn't realize in the moment, but what he was attempting to do was rid himself of his guilty conscience by passing judgment on somebody else. But what he was really doing was passing judgment on himself. The man had no pity, so he would get no pity. Nathan lets David's judgment linger in the air for a moment and says some of the most famous words in the Bible. Verse 7, he says, You are the man. David's condemned himself and suddenly has to come to terms with his own verdict. And he stands exposed before the ultimate judge. And he realizes he's not the ultimate judge. Now David's at a turning point here. He could do one of two things. Nathan confronts him. He says, you're the man. He could say, maybe I am, but I'm going to be that man. He could embrace all of that back in on himself. He could turn back in on himself. He could deny his guilt. He, he could hope maybe the conviction would one day eventually just go away. He'd just bury it deep, 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 deep down, and I have to deal with it again. Or he could fess up, and he could face the judgment. Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's me. I did it. I am that rich man that took that one little ewe lamb from that that poor man. I took the wife of a man who was fighting for me and killed him. I did that. He knows he's without excuse. He knows he deserves the death penalty he was so eager to give out earlier. What I appreciate about David is that he does confess it. He does fess up. And he knows when he does this by, commit, by admitting this, this sin, by admitting this crime, that it is essentially politically and career suicide. By doing this, Nathan could have gone around everywhere and said that David, although he is king, deserves to die because of this. He needs to be Deposed, taken off the throne, he needs to be at the, at the least excommunicated, but probably killed because of what he's done. His whole family exiled, everything ruined, all of it taken away. Nathan could have done that. When David says, I have sinned, I've done this thing, he knows that he is putting himself out there and where he could lose everything he's gained thus far, but he knows, even if that's what it is, that he deserves it. Despite the consequences, he humbles himself to accept whatever God decides to do. Now, what's so important about this story is just as much as David and his part and his guilt and his shame and his confession and humility here is knowing the character of God. Because it shouldn't surprise you what happens next if you know the character of God. Verse 13, the last half says, Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You're not going to die. God sent Nathan to convict David, but not with the intent to destroy him, 
but to delve into his heart, to bring to light things that were hidden, right? To churn up things in him till he owns it. And once David finally did, once he was carrying that all that full year of guilt and shame, and he finally pours it all and says, I've done it. I can imagine him sobbing in that moment. I can imagine him probably, probably maybe even, if not on the throne, maybe even collapsing off the throne and said, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I deserve everything that's going to happen. Whatever happens is on me. I'm just done. I'm done carrying this guilt. I'm done carrying this shame. I've committed all this messed up stuff. I failed so, so many times. And I'm done hiding it. And once he's done that, conviction and and condemnation didn't come, but forgiveness came. Forgiveness flooded in. Forgiveness in the place of shame. Restoration of relationship after that pain and separation from guilt. New life instead of certain death. See, guys, while we seek to bury our failures, they're busy burying us. And while at first it might seem easier to hide them and keep to ourselves, eventually they consume us and we're left to be a shell of a man we once were. And God sends His Holy Spirit to call us out, yeah. And to churn up in us our hidden failures, yes. But to bring to light the things we'd rather forget. But not to guilt trip us, but to free us from those things. The light of Christ shines on the dark things in our lives, exposing them not to condemn us, but to release us. Jesus himself said in John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. David felt this in this moment. He deserved to die, but now he's been given new life. Psalm 32 is a poem reflecting on that time. David loved to write. And so he writes this down. In Psalm 32, verses 1 through 6, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, just imagine this, guys. For when I kept silent, David said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the last heat of summer. And then verse 5 shifts it. It says, but I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone, everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And surely, even if great waters rush upon us, they're not going to reach us because of the forgiveness and mercy and grace and covering of our awesome God. You see, we as men fail all the time. All the time. But the perfect God-man Jesus Christ, he never failed. And through his perfect love and sacrifice, we're free from all failure to give new life to us, a new spirit, a new future. By that life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are no longer failed men, but freed men. Empowered by his spirit, not to live in fear of our failures, but to live in love and of self-control. Not of our own spirit and power, by his power and his spirit. And that switch going from being a 
failed man to a freed man happens through confession and humility. It happens by saying, yeah, I am that man. And I need that forgiveness. Not just today, it's every day. If you're here this morning and you're in need of that forgiveness, just as David was offered it, though he deserved to die, so it is offered to you, male or female, young or old, no matter how many things you've done or haven't done, forgiveness is here through Christ. If you want to accept that free gift, that, un, that thing we do not deserve, that's why it's grace, then how you respond is by confession and humility, by prayer to him, by admitting, hey, I've messed things up. I need you. That's the only way out. That's the only way to new life. So if that's you this morning, and you want to find that forgiveness, it's already found you. You just have to accept it. And you do that by prayer. For believers, though, I want to close on this for us. By God's power, and not our own, I pray that we're able to stay humble. Pride and laziness, lust, covering things up, all those fails that we do, they're all solved when we keep confessing them. and keep saying, man, I've messed up this week. I've messed up today. God, I'm sorry. Tell the people you've heard I'm sorry. And don't just say it and, and, and think all is done work hard with the power of God to keep trusting in that saving, redeeming power of Jesus and to be led by him so that we can live our lives and lead our families as men of faith and not men of failure. Let's pray this morning. If you're here and you need that moment of confession, first, you don't have to come to anybody but Jesus. Now, when you, after you come to him, I want to encourage you to go to those you've probably hurt by your failures because the failures are not self-contained. David's failure not only messed up his life, it messed up Bathsheba's. It killed a man. The, the, the baby would wind up dying. The, the, his sons would have rebelled against him. His whole life was changed from that moment on. Yes, he was free from, from death. Yes, he was still given life. And yes, from him, Christ would come to save us all. There were consequences, but he found freedom there first. He found life, though he didn't deserve it. And so today, that same life is offered to you. It's not an erasal of consequences, but what it is is a new start. To do things with a new life and a new power through a new spirit that's not your own. If you're ready to do that, you do it by confessing through prayer with words like these. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. First and foremost, thank you, Lord, that you are a God who forgives, that you look down on us in our failure and you don't snuff us out at the instant we mess up. But God, you call us to repentance. You call us to confess the things we've done. You call us to, to get down on our knees and say, Lord, I am that man 
or I am that woman. I'm the one who deserves to die, and yet, Lord, I'm trusting that your word is true, that you sent your son Jesus to die for me so that I won't, so that I have a life and life abundant, a life new, a spirit new, God, not based on fear and failure, but freedom and joy and peace, living like never before because of you in me and not because of me. Lord, help me to learn it. Help me to live it. Let it soak deep into my spirit so that when life gets tough and everything's pressed on every side, that what is squeezed out is more of you and less of me. If you said that prayer, I want to encourage you to find me or find Walt in the back or or John up front, Leo's over here. There's so many guys in this room, men, (laughs) that that are want to pray with you and tell about the next steps that happen after that because it doesn't end there. It's just the beginning. Make sure you do that. Make sure you're doing that online before you leave. For everyone else as we close, let's pray this together. Lord God, I thank you that you are a God who doesn't leave us in our failures, that you are a God who doesn't uh, immediately condemn us, God, but you have come to set us free. You have come to give us new life, Lord. You have come to make men of faith and women of faith, God, and not people of failure. That, Lord, you take our failures, God, and you redeem them to great and beautiful things. God, I'm so grateful for your graciousness, Jesus. Lord, that doesn't leave us like we are, but transforms us to be like we never could be on our own, God. Lord, I pray over every family here, every man represented, God, everyone that is here or not here, Father, in this room, Lord, that you will bless them richly, God, that you will call out into their lives through your Spirit, Lord, turning up the dark and hidden things, Lord, not so we are are guilty and condemned, but so that we are released and forgiven by your power, Jesus. Lord, help us to be able to come to you in confession, Lord, to pour out all of our deepest, darkest secrets, God, knowing that they are not hidden from you anyway, but Lord, to let them out, God, and as we let them out to receive that flood of forgiveness that you so freely give, and God, as you give that, Lord, to draw us out to the others that we have hurt. God, to the people that have been suffering because of our sin and failure, God, and not to repeat those same things, but by your power and your power alone, by the love of Christ that comes only from and through you, Jesus, we come in and have redemptive relationships. We can restore fractured relationships. God, we can come and enter into spaces where we were once separated and be brought back together by your power. God, to live as you've called us to live in new life and not in failure, in sin and death. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, thank you so much, men. That was a toughie. (laughs) Uh, A lot of real stuff up in there, but I, I I, I think we need that every once in a while to let it pour out. If you want to experience that on a weekly basis, uh, you don't have to be here on a Sunday. You can be here on a Wednesday night where we break off into men's and women's groups separately and talk about struggles and share real life stuff and uh, confess some stuff to one another and lift it up to God and forgive one another through it. So if you want to see this in practice, Wednesday nights at 6 is the time to do it. I encourage you to be here to do this with us, guys, and, and ladies, too. Uh, thank you for hanging with us. Make sure you're sharing this if you're online. We're going to wrap this portion up. Thank you for being with us this Father's Day. Make sure you are sharing this to some guy in your life that needs to hear this. I uh, encourage your dads and other men and husbands in your life. And we can't wait to see you next week uh, as we do this all over again on the 25th. So thank you for being with us. God bless. See you next time.